ah, the former things of our former life. As we think back to the time of BC, before the coronavirus, this time in our lives when we got to do what we wanted to do, when and how and where we wanted to do it. It seems like a, a passing memory, doesn't it? As we are now in the time of AD, after the disease, and we look around at the passing of our former and old lives and now see the new, the new normal, our new lives. We look around society and see the new all around us. We see the new in the speed of our adoption of technology through our Amazon shopping, our Instacart grocery delivery, our Zoom meetings. We see the new in terms of the transformation of the travel industry. I was watching an interview with the CEO of Airbnb this week, and he was saying the travel industry is changed forever. In the future, post-pandemic, business travelers will travel less and do more online. We see the new happening in terms of child education in the fall. Just this week, three different mothers contacted my wife, Lorraine, to ask about homeschooling their kids. Uh, we're in our sixth year of homeschooling this year because they're concerned about sending their children into the public school setting for health reasons. We see the new in terms of the unprecedented stimulus packages of our government or stimulus activity of the Federal Reserve. We see the new in the transformation of the biotech sector as they're all searching for over 100 companies and governments are searching for a vaccine or a therapy that will in some way eradicate the disease. And which company is going to get it? Is that going to be Moderna, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, J&J? &J? Uh, which company will help usher us in to the new reality post-pandemic? And I think that there is this overall theme in our society where we're leaving the former and the old and we're now embracing the new. And as I think about people that I know, uh, both inside and outside the church, uh, you see people embracing the new. Uh, there are people who are in uh, pursuing new jobs, who are pursuing new relationships, who are moving from one area of the city to another area of the city or from here to another state. I know of people both uh, at our church or at other churches who are changing churches during this time. Uh, there are unbelievers that I know of that are now watching our services. I know of people who um, haven't been to church for quite some time that are now watching our Sunday services. And if that is you, we welcome you here. The former and the old to the new. And let me ask you a question. As you think about that, um, where do you think God is in all of this? I mean, do you think God is, is transitioning everything from the former and the old to the new in a positive way? And he's just working positively through this as if um, he moved the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. He moved um, the sacrifices and the demands of the law into Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit through Pentecost and the birth of the church. And he's doing a positive thing through that. And he's uh, at work positively through the coronavirus event? Or do you think God is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum and he's working negatively? Um, God is punishing, disciplining us as a society for our rejection of him, for our evil. We certainly see that in the Old Testament where God would send plagues, famine, flood, invasion to discipline his people, to punish evildoers. And maybe you think God is up there just working negatively through this uh, new time. Or maybe you think God is somewhere in the middle. And he's just neutral. He's silent. Sort of like how he was fairly silent from the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, to the beginning of the New Testament with the Gospels. Uh, about 400 years where there was really no new revelation. God was seen to be silent. Wherever you think God is at in all of this, 
um, I want to submit to you this morning that God is not primarily interested in the new things that are happening in our economy, transitioning from the analog to the digital. He's not primarily interested in the new things that are happening in terms of social unrest, and hopefully we can be a less racist society or uh, more helpful to the poor around us. Uh, He's not primarily interested in the timing of which company will get the vaccine or the therapy that will help society. All those things matter to God, I'm sure, at some level, but that is not what God is primarily interested in. What God is primarily interested in the transition from the former and old to the new is what is happening in you. What is happening in your heart? What is happening in the church as we transition into the new? Uh, We see God working from the old to the new in the Old Testament, the New Testament. He's doing the same thing in the 21st century. God is always at work to bring about the new from the former and the old. In the past five months, we've been in a series called The Church as Diaspora, where we've been looking at the teachings of the Apostle James and the Apostle Peter as they spoke to the first century church in their own diaspora experience and and how God was working new things through that. Uh, We're going to take a detour, go in a new direction this Sunday and for the rest of summer, and we're going to start looking at passages from leaders and prophets in the Old Testament and how they spoke to God's people, how God used them to speak to God's people in their own diaspora experience, whether that was from Egypt to the Promised Land or from the Promised Land to uh, the Babylonian and Assyrian invasions and captivity and then return to repatriate uh, the the Promised Land. And so we're going to look this morning at a passage from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah ministered in the 8th and 7th century B.C., Uh, During the divided kingdom, he primarily ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah. He was a contemporary of the prophets Hosea and Micah. He ministered during four or five different reigns of Judah's kings, uh, from Uzziah to uh, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and and probably Manasseh, in part. Uh, Church tradition, church history tells us that Isaiah was probably martyred at the hands of Manasseh, the wicked king of Judah. Um, probably the one referenced in Hebrews chapter 11, this great hall of fame chapter of faith, where it talks about in Hebrews 11 that some in the faith from ancient times were martyred. Some were stoned, some were put to death by the sword, and some were sawed in two in half. And church tradition says that Isaiah probably died while he was sawed in two pieces under the hand of evil Manasseh. Isaiah ministers across time and space to five different um, uh places and times. The first is during his own time where he calls Judah to leave their fake religion, to stop mistreating the poor, to um, for their corrupt leaders to turn to God and to give up their idolatry of false idols. Secondly, he ministers uh, uh, for for telling the time when God would raise up the Babylonians to invade uh, Judah and take them captive to Babylon over a series of maybe about 20 years culminating in 586 B.C. Uh, Babylon would invade, invade, ransack, destroy Jerusalem, and God would raise them up to take them captive. Third, Isaiah ministers to a time where um, he foresees a time when God's people will come back. After 70 years of captivity in Babylon, they'll come back to Jerusalem, rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple, and restart their life in the Promised Land. And uh, he, Isaiah really spends much of the latter third of his uh, 66 chapters on that theme of how forth, how Christ will usher in um, uh, just a new way to know God, that Christ 
is the lamb that was slain. He is the one who uh, was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our inequities, whose wounds we are healed by, Isaiah chapter 53. And number five, Isaiah talks about throughout his, uh, his letter about the return of Christ at some time in the distant future. That uh, where the lion and the lamb and the leopard will lie down together and all of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 11. And so in our passage today, Isaiah offers hope in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 16 through 25, that God is doing a new thing amidst the former and old things. Let's read this together. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah in verse 16 of chapter 43. Thus says the Lord. Who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and ostriches. For I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I have formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Verse 22. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, verse 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Isn't that interesting? God blots out our transgressions, not primarily for our sake, but for his. And I will not remember your sins. It's a great passage of hope that Isaiah gives to us. And um, again, I think the theme here in verse 18 and 19 for us to kind of uh, keep in mind throughout this message is where God says, remember not the former things, the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? What new thing does God want to do in your life from the old and former things of your past? Um, This passage talks about two experiences that the Israelites had that we want to highlight because uh, it was the experience of the sea and the experience of the wilderness. And I think there are many of you here today that are going through a similar experience of facing the barriers of the sea and wandering throughout the wilderness and see Uh, need to hear a reminder of the promise of God, of how he will work through that to do a new thing, how he will be faithful to his people. So let's look at this first experience of the sea that that the Israelites experienced. And God is using that to encourage Judah, but also I think to encourage us here today in the 21st century, the sea. This was a place where, as you know, uh, Israel um, had been in... um, in Egypt for about 430 years. Not all of that was in slavery, but a lot of it for generations and generations it was. And uh, God raised up Moses at a late age um, after he revealed himself to Moses in the book of Exodus saying, "I tell them I am who I am has sent you, Moses. And uh, Moses takes that message to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, my God has said, let my people go. Let them be free. God is doing a new thing and he wants them to be free. And to go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart as well at the same time. 
Uh, he refuses. God sends 10 plagues. Pharaoh changes his mind. And all 2 million or so of the Israelites are free to go. And uh, Pharaoh changes his mind. He sends his chariots, his armies to go get the Israelites back. And the Israelites come to the edge of the Red Sea. And they come to a place where they're blocked going forward. And as they look back, they see Pharaoh bearing down upon them with his chariots and his army to kill them and to bring them back. The sea for Israel represented a dead end when they looked forward. The sea represented for Israel when they looked back a place of seeing the forces that were aligned against them, that were prepared to run them down. The sea represented fear. It represented being trapped. It represented a place where they felt like they had been led by God only to face a dead end. What sea are you facing as you look forward that is a dead end for you? As you look backwards, uh, what evil or what circumstance do you see coming bearing down upon you to threaten you and to uh, look for your downfall? I think you need to hear who God is and what he does when his people face the sea. Verse 16 and 17, again, God says, I am the one who makes a way and a path in the sea and the mighty waters. Verse 17, I am the one who puts down the chariot, the horse, the army, the warrior. I am the one who extinguishes their wick. And as you know from uh, this great um, story in the book of Exodus that God parted the Red Sea in front of the Israelites, they marched through that. And as they got to the other end and Pharaoh's army pursued them in the middle of the parted sea, God brought crashing down upon them the sea and destroyed Pharaoh and the army and God's people were free to go on the other side of the Red Sea. And isn't that what we all want uh, for our own lives here? Um, could it be possible that the sea that is in front of you, the barrier that is in front of you, that the forces align against you at your back, that God could already be working. God already has a plan to deliver you, to part the sea in front of you, and you just need to trust in him. Um, God can work in any number of unexpected ways. Is it possible he's doing that, going to do that in your life? Um, I want to tell you two, two stories from uh, earlier on in my ministry where God did the unexpected to part the waters in front of us. Uh, one is uh, myself and Lorraine and others, we did some missional ministry uh, in downtown Long Beach, California. It's a very, uh, it was a very wicked place, a very a post-Christian place. And we were there for about 10 years. And we met in an area, uh, uh, an art gallery called the Creative Design Lab. And uh, for the first few years, there were three individuals who ran the gallery. We rented time from them for our church services, our Bible studies, our outreaches. But there was a lot of wickedness that was going on in the gallery when we weren't there. Um, they would have um, women stay over um, and do things that shouldn't be done there. Um, they would have um, gambling and drinking, and uh, they would show art on the walls. That would, we would walk in on Sunday mornings, and it was just very wicked, very dishonoring to God. And so we would have to put sheets over it when we do our church services. And um, there was just this barrier in front of us, of us being surrounded by this wickedness. But we felt that God wanted us there to declare as his salt and his light in this very dark area. And, um, and God parted the Red Sea for us. He parted our own sea for us because within the span of three months, a couple years into this journey, God removed all three of the individuals who were, who were involved in wicked activity 
um, one person who was running the gallery, he got caught up in a Department of Homeland Security sting operation against him where they caught him, threw him in jail, and sent him out of the country never to return back to the United States. After he's thrown into jail, we found out he stole $3,000 from our church. We never got it back from him. The second individual, we found out, stole $1,500 from our church. We confronted him on it, and, um, and he was so ashamed, he just kind of left. The third individual, we found out, he, he ran a, a graphic arts studio uh, beneath our gallery in the storefront, and we found out he got in trouble with the IRS. They chased him down. He closed up shop, and he just disappeared one day. And all of a sudden, God parted the waters in front of us for our church to take possession of the land, to take possession of the Creative Design Lab for us to now do ministry unencumbered un, and no longer being yoked to this evil. And on top of that, that uh, 4,000 4, or so that was stolen from us, a little bit more, 4,200, 4,500. Um, within three weeks of this, us discovering that this happened, God brought forward two donors to donate to us that exact amount. And one of them had no idea what we were going through. Now, that may or may not sound like a lot of money to you, but when you're a small urban church with very little means, God does great things through small things. Uh, that was a big deal to us. And God did the miracle. And he parted the waters for us to move forward in ways that we never would have expected. And we did ministry there for many years, uh, led people to Christ, built up um, the church there. And so really good things happened. A second example that happened around that time was um, uh, I was in a pastoral prayer meeting and uh, I, I found out that one of the pastors in the city, uh, we used to meet a whole group of pastors of us for years to talk about what's happening in the city and to pray for the city. One of the pastors that we all knew recently, he left his wife, he left his church, and he was a pretty well-known pastor in the city. And he got together with this, uh, this other woman that from his church who left her husband and left her kids and they moved in together. And uh, this was great, greatly disturbing to all of us. And we had a prayer meeting specifically for this um, circumstance and they asked different pastors to pray. And I kind of volunteered and I prayed, Lord, would you resolve this? Would you bring people to repentance? Uh, would you be honored through this Lord in this very, very grievous situation? And uh, one of the pastors had given an update where this pastor's heart was and um, he didn't have much money. He didn't have any money really left over. So he was just charging everything on his credit card, ran up $25,000 worth of debt on his credit card. Um, and he was committed to this new relationship. And so I was just, even as I was praying these words, I was like, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. This situation sounds so far gone. Well, a few weeks later, we got an update and we found out that uh, the, not, the pastor didn't change his mind, but the woman that he was with, she changed her mind. And she decided to leave him, go back to her previous marriage and her children. And then that pastor went back to his marriage. And amazingly, his wife took him back. And I believe both couples are still married to this day. Um, and that was an example of how it was a situation where we didn't see a way forward. And God did the unexpected, working not through the pastor's heart, but through, through the other woman's heart to break it off. And then uh, things got reconciled on both ends. And praise God for that. You might be in a situation right now, where you're facing a sea that's in front of you, like the Israelites. Um, and you don't know what the way forward is. And there's all this pressure that's bearing down upon you. Remember that the Lord is the one who makes the path. The Lord is the one who makes a way. And he has any number of ways that he can do that, that you have never thought about. And you should know that you were to trust him. I think one of the things that 
we learn from this experience is we are to trust God more. We are to trust in ourselves less. Because God is in control of the situation that you face. And he can stop what is behind you. And he can do a new thing for what is in front of you. And so the reminder of the sea is a reminder that God can part the waters in front of you. Let's trust him. Let's trust in each other, in ourselves less. Second experience that the Israelites had um, that is drawn upon in this passage is the experience in the wilderness. Uh, sometimes we have to go through the wilderness to leave behind the former and the old to get to the new. Um, what wilderness experience are you going through right now? You know, for the Israelites, and they, they left Egypt and they crossed over to the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army were defeated. They then went forward for about two years and they came to the wilderness of Paran, uh, which is not too far from the promised land. And it says in Numbers chapter 13 that Moses sent out 12 spies, one spy from the 12 tribes, and um, to go check out the land. They came back, 10 of them incited fear in God's people, saying, we can't do this. We can't go into the promised land. The giants that live there are too big. Joshua and Caleb said, no, let's go in. Let's take possession of the land. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is God's what God has for us. And uh, it was that experience of God's people cowering, falling back in cowardice and not going to the promised land, along with all these other experiences where God was just hearing them grumble. Hey, we want to. We don't want to go forward. We don't be in this wilderness. We want to go back to Egypt where at least we had leeks and all these, you know, all these good food to eat. And God was listening to their grumble. You know, maybe you're here and you're wandering in your own wilderness. You want to go back to Egypt, your own Egypt, rather than be open to what God has for you in the wilderness. You want to go back to your own Egypt, the former old ways, just because you're not open to what God wants to do with your life now in the wilderness. The, 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 your, your own personal Egypt sounds more appealing, even though that leads back to your own bondage, your own slavery, spiritual slavery, back to the old ways. See, the wilderness represented a place of reaping consequences for Israel. Because God said to them, um, you don't want to go in, that's fine. You're going to wander for another, you know, what ended up being another 38 years, 40 total. Um, you're going to die in the desert, but your children will get to go into the promised land. And Israel reaped the consequences of their actions. And God uh, allowed their children to move forward because they died and they wasted time. See, um, you may think that uh, living apart from God is the better way, is the smarter way. Um, and you can live your life in a way that's in rebellion to him, that is um, going to allow you to get away with it. But here's the problem that you have. The problem you have is that God is not, God has more time than you do. God can simply outlast you. And God can simply just allow you to wander in your own personal wilderness for year after year, decade after decade. And your life really doesn't even move forward not towards him or just in general. And God will just outlast you. And the wilderness represented a place of wasted time, of despair, of regret, of being humbled by God. What wilderness are you wandering through in, in your life right now? And God wants to remind you in verse 19 through 21 of this message of hope. He says, I am the one who makes a way in the wilderness. 
I am the one who water gives you water in the wilderness. I, I bring forward rivers in the desert. I give drink to my chosen people whom I have formed for myself to declare my praise. God wants you to know that um, in your own wilderness experience, your own wandering, that he is the one who can give refreshment, who can bring healing, who can bring about the new work in you. And sometimes the new work that has to happen in you can only happen in the wilderness. It only happens through our, us being humbled by God to receive the new thing that he has. We can be stubborn, but we're not going to outlast God. The Israelites learned the hard way. Um, I've been going through my own wilderness experience the past four years. Um, several experiences where have been really tested me, a lot of suffering, persecution um, that I've experienced. When my father died, I had to go through two probate proceedings to release his funds to take care of my incapacitated mom. And so uh, the pa- I counted it up. Over the past uh, about three and a half years, over the past four years, I spent about 2,500 hours essentially working for the court so that my mom could have the money that she needs to be taken care of. And that was just just an experience of suffering. Um, It affected my health, uh, my family. It took time away from my ministry to the church for three and a half years. And I'm finally out of that situation by the grace of God. Um, And secondly, I've I've made several decisions over the past few years uh, that I believed honored the Lord, that were right and true and noble, excellent and praiseworthy, that stood up for the truth, stood up for righteousness. And I really suffered for that. I suffered persecution uh, for those choices um, that was coming from outside the church as well as from inside some in the church. Um, And I don't regret the choices that I've made because I believed it was right, and I still believe that. But I've really suffered for that, those two experiences and persecution. And and I've come to recognize that um, the work that God wanted to do in me I think it would have been very difficult for him to do that had I not gone through this wandering in my own personal wilderness the past four years of suffering. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 that he who has suffered for the Lord's sake, for righteousness sake, he who has suffered is done with sin. Because he who has suffered and done is done with sin no longer lives for worldly passions, but for what? For the will of God. And I recognize that the Lord has caused me to appreciate Christ's suffering and his persecution where I never would have before. And for me to depend on him in a way that is not just my own power to always fix the situation to get me out of the wilderness. But to say, Lord, if you have me here, what do you want from me? What, what do you want to change about my own heart? Um, how can I follow you? And two things happen when, when you take that posture. Number one is... Um, You surrender unto the Lord, and the peace of God comes upon you. Because um, like Job, like Habakkuk in the Old Testament, they didn't understand what the suffering or injustice that was happening in them and all around them. But once the Lord revealed to them and said, I am God, you're not, I know what's happening, I'm going to be just, Um, I know what's, I'm going to work this out perfectly, that was enough for Job and Habakkuk. I think it needs to be enough for me. It needs to be enough for you that God wants you to know that he is the one that is in control, whether it was in ancient Israel during the time of Isaiah or here in the 21st century during the coronavirus event. And he's in control of your situation and he sees what is happening. He sees your wandering. Um, He even sees some of the injustice or the evil that is coming your way and he will take care of that. And you should know that church. And the second thing that happens when you surrender into the Lord is not just as, Um, Do you have the Lord's peace upon you? 
but um, you don't put yourself in the position of having to stay in the wilderness anything anytime longer than you have to. And that's tragic because when we look back and at Israel, they put themselves in the wilderness. They couldn't be trusted by God. And what you want to do is eliminate the 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 um, opportunities for God to say to you, you are in your wilderness because of your own doing. At least if you're going to be in the wilderness, let it be God's doing, not reaping what we sow. And therefore, we are in the wilderness because of our own doing. And um, and the wilderness was this place. But if we seek the Lord out, we will find him. And finally, for today, whether you're in the sea, facing the sea or wandering in the wilderness, uh, the, the prophet Isaiah says in verse 22 through 25, I think very important for us. He says, again, the Lord says, you did not call upon me, O Jacob, O Israel. And then he says, you didn't honor me with your sacrifices. You didn't satisfy me with your sacrifices, but you burdened me with your sins, with your iniquity. Um, but I can blot out those transgressions. And this is a reminder to us in the latter verses of this passage that um, when you're facing the sea and the barriers of that and facing the evil behind you, when you're wandering through the wilderness, what God wants from you and I is to call upon him, to trust him, and to offer him the spiritual sacrifices that he deserves. Yes, Christ is our spiritual sacrifice ultimately for our salvation, but for our sanctification, to offer unto him sacrifices that are pleasing to him, and he will blot out our transgressions, and he will deliver us uh, from the barrier of the sea and the wandering in the wilderness. And so I would say to us at the church, um, let's call upon the Lord. Let's, we need to confess things, church, to the Lord. We need to pray to him. We need to confess our sins to other believers in the church and turn from our wicked ways. We need to call upon him, and he will blot out our transgressions for his name's sake. Secondly, we need to offer him proper honoring spiritual sacrifices, the kind that is talked about in really Isaiah, um, but that really is it's changed with Christ and and Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are offering him spiritual sacrifices. Um, the New Testament talks about spiritual sacrifices in many ways. It talks about um, in Romans 12 that we are to offer the sacrifice of ourselves to the Lord. Uh, Paul says, offer yourselves as a spiritual sacrifice unto the Lord, having your minds renewed, and you'll find the will of God. Um, that's the most important thing you can do, church, is say, Lord, I give myself to you. In this situation... Change my thinking, change my attitude, change my heart, and um, and then I will be able to honor you in whatever circumstance comes my way. We are to offer the spiritual sacrifice of ourselves. Secondly, the New Testament talks about offering ourselves as spiritual sacrifices by sacrificing our liberty and our freedom in areas that we could uh, get away with as Christians if it violates the conscience of a weaker Christian. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 11 that if you're in situations where you can have liberty to do certain things as a Christian, but you know that other Christians who have a weaker conscience, it would violate their conscience. We are to sacrifice our liberty. We are to sacrifice our freedom out of love for our Christian brothers and sisters. Third, spiritual sacrifices is talked about in the New Testament in terms of love, loving others. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said that Christ was a sacrifice. He showed his love for us by sacrificing himself and, uh, and loving us in that way. And we are to offer... Um, our own sacrifices of love to others. Many of you have made meals 
uh, for those who are sick in our church over the past few months as an act of love. Uh, some of you have celebrated birthdays, whether it's Ted or Michelle or others. Um, the women's ministry have been uh, loving each other by responding to the needs that the women have in areas of either purity or um, just being there for one another. There's a text thread that some of the women have that they text every few days about uh, spiritual requests that they have. And that's an act of spiritual sacrifice of love. Fourth, spiritual sacrifice is talked about in terms of financial giving. The Apostle Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 4 how he thanked the Philippian church um, for their financially supporting his ministry. And City Bible Church, you have been faithful in your giving during the coronavirus event. Uh, our giving has not gone down. In fact, when we established a second fund, uh, the Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 fund in March that was designed to help Christians in distress, financial distress, primarily inside our church, some outside of our church. Most of those funds have been distributed. And what you have done that you are to be commended for is you have given faithfully in a way where our giving has been maintained. And you've given above and beyond that to those Christians who are in need. And um, maybe about a dozen, 15 uh, people have been helped through that fund. Number five and six, in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, spiritual sacrifice is talked about in terms of praising God with our lips. If you have not been, um, if you're part of our church and you haven't been part of our worship services online on Sunday mornings, we, we want to encourage you to praise God through the, the worship time that's led by Garen or Matt or John um, and, and others. And I just want to encourage you to pray and to be part of that and to praise God. And he is pleased with your worship that comes from your lips. And again, from Hebrews chapter 13, finally, uh, number six, we are to praise God through uh, we are to give spiritual sacrifice unto God through doing good, uh, doing acts of kindness and goodness, and to share with what we have. Um, as many of you know, six of the guys in the church have been and uh, will be moving into the house that me and Lorraine moved out of. We live in a new house now uh, across the city. And um, Jay was showing me a videotape of, of what our house, old house looks like. And he said, oh, all this furniture has been donated from by different people in the church, and they've been dropping off meals, and it's been so great. And that's just an act of sacrifice, of doing good and love. And I know of others of you who have hired other people at our church who are in financial need. There are several examples of that. Just an act of doing good and sharing what you have. If you're going through the sea, the wilderness experience, you should know that God, your God, can make a way forward for you. He can make a path in the sea and the waters that are the barrier before you and the forces that align against you can make a path forward for you to walk in victory. Your God, if you're wandering through the wilderness, can give you drink and refreshment because you are his chosen people. And as you see God provide for you in the wilderness, you will declare his praise. Um, God is about bringing about the new from the former old and if you call upon him, if you honor him with the spiritual sacrifices that he desires, he will bless you. He will strengthen you. He will bring about the new work that he wants to do in your life. If you're listening to this and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you should know that the most important new work that God wants to do is to change you from the former old you into the new you in Jesus Christ. The former old you is the person of deep brokenness, 
of being trapped by your own evil, of uh, being unable to overcome your worship of the idols of the world, of being under the influence of satanic forces and under the judgment of God, both now and in eternity. That is the old and former you. But the new you that God wants to bring about through Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, the old has passed away, the new has come, the new creation in Jesus Christ has come, meaning if you give your life to Jesus Christ, Christ will change your heart. He will give you his goodness, his righteousness, his peace, his love, his life. He will cleanse you of your past sins and forgive you and bring you to peace with God. He will live his life through the power of the Holy Spirit through you. He will renew your mind through his words and the other words of scripture. And you will find the truth in this and you will find life in eternity. The Apostle John said that in, in the end times, God will make all things new when he uh, wipes away the universe and recreates it in a new world and a new work. And if you want to be a part of that, then give your life to Jesus. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10 that if anyone would believe in their hearts that Jesus has been raised from the dead, which means that he has conquered sin, he has conquered death, and he is alive today. If anyone would believe that he has been risen from the dead and is willing to confess Jesus as Lord, which means that you don't want yourself to be Lord. You don't want your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or some other person to be your Lord. You don't want some idol of the world, money or power or fame to be your Lord. You don't want Satan to be your Lord. You want Jesus to be your Lord. If you are willing to confess Jesus as Lord and believe he has risen from the dead, Paul writes in Romans 10, you will be saved. Do you want to be saved? That is the most important new work that you can be a part of that will change your life. Confess your sins to Jesus and embrace him as a follower of his and give him your life and he will change your life. He will do the ultimate new work in your life. Church, the old and the former ways are passing away. God is wanting to do a new work in you, whether it's through the sea or the wilderness. Embrace that. Believe that God can deliver. Trust in him. Lessen yourself. And give yourself to the work of his spiritual sacrifices. Call upon his name, and he will bless that. And he will bring to completion the new work that he began in you through this. And God will part the waters in front of you and he will deliver you from the wilderness and he will do a new work in you.